Well, if you would, would you please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, and so if you haven't been around us, we've been doing our Advent series this year through Revelation. And so Bill kicked us off last week with Revelation chapter 12, and we talked about the woman and the dragon and the baby, and we saw this cosmic battle that's going on between good and evil. And we see the dragon, which is Satan, and we see the birth of his adversary, the baby Jesus. And so it's this fulfillment of the promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when God said to Eve, your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. And so Revelation is filled with this cosmic struggle. And it also prevents this, or presents this struggle in fantastic imagery. And if I'm more often than not, people can be intimidated by the book of Revelation. But it's one of my favorite books of the Bible because it's actually got a very, very simple message that we can sum up in just two words. The message of Revelation is that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. He's on the throne. And so that's what Revelation is about. And our passage today is actually a perfect embodiment of this statement that Jesus wins. So chapter 4 of Revelation sets the stage of the throne room in heaven. John is seeing things through the eyes of the Spirit, and he's looking to the throne room of God. And so the chapter 4 of Revelation sets the stage, and chapter 5, a drama plays out in the throne room in heaven. And so we're going to read that drama, if you would follow along with me, starting in chapter 5, verse 1 of Revelation. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, with a, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. In the reading of God's word this morning, would you please pray with me as we seek God's help to understand what's going on in this passage. 
Our Father, there's a lot of strange things in this text, but there's also a lot of beauty in this text. And so, Father, we need your help to understand it this morning. Father, we ask that you send your Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and illumine our hearts. Give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear what you wish to us to hear this morning. Father, we want to see your Son, Jesus. We ask that you show him to us. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, Advent is one of my favorite times of the year for many different reasons. I love anticipating the birth of Jesus, having that intentional season of focus. I even love driving around looking at Christmas lights, and I love the joyful and festive nature of the season, but I also love the music. I love Christmas music. And so it's not just because the melodies are beautiful and they're they're easy to sing along to, but some of our Christmas hymns have some of the incredibly rich theology, the most incredibly rich theology. And so one such song is a song that we're probably all familiar with, O Holy Night. And I want to read to you the lyrics from the first verse, and let this scene of O Holy Night play out in your imagination this morning. It says, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It's the night of our dear Savior's birth. And so listen to this next line kind of talks about the state of the world. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. So we don't use this word pining very often, but there's two different definitions for it, and I think they both actually fit here. And so the first meaning of pining is that it's to suffer a mental and physical decline, which is very much applicable when we look out at our world. Things are in decline. The world has long been in sin, it's long been in error, and it's been wasting away ever since the fall of man. But the second definition of pining is this. It is to miss and long for the return of something. To miss and long for the return of something. And so one great truth from this song is that through sin, a relationship is broken, and there's this longing, there's a pining for a restored relationship. And so in light of that, the next line says this. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Now listen to this. This is what I really want to point out here. Favorite line of the song. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. And so this thrill of hope is that one day things are not going to be like they are now. One day things are going to be fixed. Right now we have a weary, a tired, a broken world. And it says it's that very world that rejoices at this thrill of hope. And so it's this line that I want us to think about this morning as we look at this text. I think our passage invites us this morning to have a thrill of hope that we ultimately respond with this weary world and we rejoice. And so I think a lot of us can resonate with Bilbo Baggins when he says, why I feel all thin, sort of stretched, if you know what I mean, like butter that has been scraped over too much bread. Kind of feel stretched thin, like butter scraped over too much bread. And so if you walk into this room today, Weary, tired, worn down from the world, spread thin. I think this passage is a perfect passage for you. One that can give us that thrill of hope. And so I want to invite you this morning to dare to hope, to see the thrill of the Advent season and all that Jesus has come to do for you. And I'll see that this morning by looking at three points. The lion, the lamb, and laud. The lion, the lamb, and laud. And so let's look at our first point this morning, the lion. 
Well, actually, before we get to the lion, I want to give you just a little bit of background information to set the stage for you what's going on here in Revelation chapter 5. If you look back to chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus tells John, the author of Revelation, he says to come here and to see what's to take place. And so John is looking into the throne room of heaven to see what is going to happen. And so John gets this glimpse and there's all these magnificent colors in the throne room of heaven. There's beauty, there's strange creatures. But at the center of this room, there's a throne. And surrounding this throne is 24 other smaller thrones. But seated on the middle throne, the great throne itself, is God. And we don't have time to get into what all of that means, but if you want to study more, I really like Vern Poitras' book, The Returning King. It's really accessible, really affordable, um, and he can t- explain to you what everything means in chapter 4. But he's going to show up again later. But in chapter 5, this drama plays out here in this throne room. And so we see in verse 1 of chapter 5 that John looks and he sees the scroll in the right hand of the one who's on the throne. And so he has this scroll. And so I've said it already, but Revelation is filled with figurative language. It's symbolic language. And so the scroll is the symbol of something. The scroll is filled with writing on front and the back, and it's full, it is complete, and it's sealed shut, and it has seven seals on it. And so there's various different interpretations of what this scroll actually is. What does it contain? We aren't told what it contains. And so we can only speculate. But I've read a lot of scholars on this, and what I think the scroll is, is that it's God's plan of what's going to happen. It's God's plan, it's the destiny of the world, right? What is going to happen? And so it's his plan for the redemption of his people and for the judgment of the wicked. And so in order for God's plan for history, for his plan for salvation to be carried out, someone has to open the scroll. And so that's what it symbolizes, God's plan, and it's sealed shut. And someone has to open it to make it happen. So let's look at what happens next in verses 2 to 4. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So in order for God's plan to be unleashed on the world, the scroll has to be opened. But there's a problem that no one can open it. There's no man that can open it and there's no angel that can open it. No one can open it. No one is able to bring about God's purposes in history. And so this may not seem like a big deal to us. What's the big deal? It's it's a scroll. But this is why this is a really big deal. Without God's plan unfolding, this is what Tim Chester says. He says, history, it seems, is left to spin out of control. If God's plan is not coming forward, then history is just chaos. Chaos wins the day. It's more the mess that we have continues on in the world. It even worsens. And there will be no one that can stop it. There's going to be no end to death, no end to pain, no end to suffering, no end to sorrow. It's just chaos. And so what a world it would be, how hopeless it would be if anything goes, where where justice goes unserved, where there's no promise of a better tomorrow, that today is all we have and the evil and sorrow that rule it. It's all we get. And so it's no wonder that John looks at this and sees that the scroll can't be opened and he responds by weeping. He's distraught. He begins to weep because he sees the importance of this scroll. So let me put this in practical terms for us of what this scroll is so that we can try to understand it and feel this with the same gravity that John feels it. If the scroll goes unopened, 
if God's plan for history becomes unfolded, if it does not happen, then all of your suffering, all of your trials, every hard and sad and evil thing that has ever happened in your life is for nothing. That's what's at stake with the scroll being unopened. And that's what causes John to weep. Vern Poitras says this, he says, The destiny of John, of the church, and of the universe itself hangs in the balance over the question of whether someone can open the scroll. That's important. That, that's, a, that's a gravity uh, that we should feel. And so we see why John weeps is the importance of God's plan being unfolded. The story doesn't end there. If you look at verse 5, it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so we get this elder that responds. He says, Don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah is here. He has conquered. And so there is one who is able to open the scroll. It's only one person. And so it's here we see that familiar Advent language, the, the, the Lion of Judah, the, the Root of David, the Rod of Jesse. And so the Lion of Judah is a reference all the way back to Genesis 49. And it's talking about Jacob, and it's giving this prophecy that the ruler, that the true king is going to come through the line of Jacob. And he's called a lion, the Lion of Judah. And so he's going to have these lion-like characteristics where he'd be strong and fierce. He's victorious over his enemies. Then the root of David's reference to Isaiah 11 and the line of David. Actually, if you've been following along in our Advent devotionals, you're going to be reading Isaiah 11 this week. But what it means is that David, that, that Jesus is going to come from the line of David. And that there was a prophecy to David that God would establish a forever kingdom, a kingdom that would never fall, fall away with an everlasting king over it through David. And so all of this, when we hear that the line of the tribe of Judah and the rod of da or the root of David, what this means is that it refers to the promised messianic king who's going to come and put an end to Satan under his foot and conquer for his people. And so on this side of the history, we know that that person is Jesus. And Jesus is from the line of Jacob and from the line of David. And so Jesus is the true lion of Judah. And so he can open the scroll because he has conquered and so here is our first point, that Jesus is the Lion of Judah, he's the Root of David, and he came to triumph over his enemies. He's powerful, he's strong, he will win. But it may not be in the way that we would expect him to do it. And that leads us to our second point, the Lamb. And so in my opinion, this is the most amazing part of the passage here. So if you look at, look at verses 6 and 7. It says, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And so after we get this pronouncement that there's this lion, this conquering lion that's going to come, that he can open the scroll, that he's the conqueror, John turns around and he looks and what does he see? He sees a lamb, not a lion but a lamb. And this is no ordinary lamb. It's a lamb that looks like it's been slain. And so Poitras, he calls this the central paradox and mystery of the Christian faith. This is what he says. He says, God achieved his triumph and delivered his people, not through the fireworks of military might, but through the weakness of crucifixion, 
this way of doing things is an offense to worldly ways of thinking. And so this part of this passage just flies in the face of the world. The world tells us that to win, you need to be big and strong and powerful and mighty. And yet it was through the weakness of the crucifixion in which the lamb conquered. Jesus secured victory through his death. Tim Chester puts it this way. He says, instead of the mighty beast of imperial power, we have a lamb. Instead of a victorious general, we have the one who has been slain. Instead of the power, glory, and wisdom of the empire, we have the weakness, shame, and folly of the cross. But it's the folly and the weakness of the cross that has conquered. The king reigns from the cross. So this is exactly what it says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And so it's this backwards deliverance that we would think. It just, it's just offensive to the way of the world. It's through weakness in which he conquers, the lamb being slain. And so think back to the scroll, right? The scroll that has God's plan for history in it. His plan of salvation for you, his plan of redemption for his people. It's a plan of rescue. Think back to that scroll. There's something about this lamb that made it worthy to open the scroll. And we have, no further, we have to look no further than what Jesus' work on the cross is. We can exclaim what John the Baptist said in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He alone can bring about God's plan of salvation because it centers all on Him and His work on the cross. There's a couple more things we need to point out here. Notice where the Lamb is placed. He's at the center of the throne room. Everything's around Him. And so not only is He the center of the throne room, but He's actually the center of the entire universe. All of history revolves around the Lamb. And so it's worth noting in chapter 7 that it refers to the Lamb being at the throne, on the throne with God. And then in chapter 22, verse 1, it's referred to as the throne of God and the Lamb. It couples them together. The Lamb is before the throne and the Lamb is on the throne. And so this is what this means. Not only did Jesus triumph through his death, but he also triumphed in his resurrection. And he sits on the throne and he's actively ruling, even right now. So before we move on, I want to address the elephant in the room. You might be saying, okay, Jeremy, I'm tracking with you. I get the lion part. I get the lamb part. But what's up with these seven horns and these seven eyes and the seven spirits of God? That, that uh, kind of flies over my head. That's a little weird. Well, remember, Revelation is filled with symbolic language, right? There's a purpose behind everything. And you can do a whole study on numbers in Revelation. The number seven is extremely important. And so the use of seven is not arbitrary, it's intentional. Number seven is a number of completeness, of fullness. And so the horns, they're symbols of power and authority. And we see this back to Daniel and you see it in the Psalms in several instances. The horn means power and authority. And so he has a full authority on the lamb. Then you get these seven spirits of God, the seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God. Uh, what this is is just another description of the Holy Spirit. It's the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit. So there the fullness of the Holy Spirit dwells in the Lamb, with the Lamb, with the throne there. And so this is actually really neat here. In verse 6, we actually see the Trinity present. You know, if someone were to ask you, where in the Bible does it show the Trinity? Well, we see the Trinity here in verse 6. You have the throne, which God is on. You have the Lamb, who is the Son. And you have the seven spirits of God, which is the Holy Spirit. And so that's a good proof for the Trinity right there. 
but that's just a little extra. And so the last thing I want to say about the lamb, though, is that he does indeed take the scroll and he shows that he's the only one who's worthy to carry out God's plan. God's plan is contingent on the work of the lamb. No other can make it open. No other can deliver his people. It's all contingent on the lamb. And so this is the point here is that Jesus is the lion who conquers, but he's also the lamb who was slain. And so it's through his work as our sacrificial lamb that we can be made right with God. And not only is he worthy to open the scroll, but he's also worthy of our praise. And that looks, brings us to our last point this morning, laud. And so we've come to the weird word of the week this week, uh, laud. It's a word we don't say very much, but we do sing it. We have a song, All Glory, Laud, and Honor. It also makes an appearance in Onward Christian Soldiers, if you're familiar with that song. But what it means, it means praise or worship. Praise or worship. And so there's a lot of things that we can talk about in verses 9 to 14. There's a lot of good imagery there. There's a lot of good description of things going on, going on. But I really just want to point to one big idea that we can get from these last five verses of this chapter. After seeing the Lamb take the scroll, heaven responds and breaks out in praise. So look at their song in verse 9. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain by your blood, and you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so the lamb is worthy because it was his blood that purchased redemption for all the people of God. And so this is not just a particular people that like Israel, but it's a people from every single tribe, every single nation, every single language. They've all come together and that's who he has purchased. It's from all over the earth. And so more than that, they sing that these people become a kingdom and priests. What's that about? Well, this is language from Exodus 19, the promise that it's given to Israel. This is what it says in Exodus 19, Israel's status as being God's chosen people. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that promise, that promise there that you're going to be God's treasured possession is now given to the whole earth, to all from different tribes, different nations, all that belong to him. And so the fact is worthy of a response and praise. And so praise extends outward from here. It starts with these living creatures, it starts with the elders, and then it goes on to the host of angels in verse 11. And it says there's myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands of angels here singing. And then even further than that, in verse 13, it extends to the earth. Every creature on the earth will join in the song as well. And so what we're left with here in Revelation 5 is this magnificent chorus of praise that extends from heaven all the way to earth where every creature is praising the Lamb. And the very thing that they're doing is they're putting into practice what they're singing. The Lamb is worthy to receive praise and power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so look at the last chorus there though in verse 13. It concludes all of these songs that they're singing that all of these things should be given to the Lamb forever and ever. And then there's a shout of amen from the living creatures. So forever and ever this song is to be sung. The late Gordon Fee who passed away about a month ago points out that this praise this to go on forever and ever is an invitation to you to include you in this praise. That, that this forever and ever praising involves us as well too. 
That when we look to the Lamb, that when we look to the cross, that we should respond in praise as well. And so this is what Gordon Fee says. He says, it would seem equally to miss John's point and concern if later readers are not moved to do the same. If you and I aren't moved to do the same, to respond in praise. Indeed, what is left for us at the least is to burst forth with our own amen to the eternal glory here described as belonging especially to the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't been listening this morning or you've had trouble following along, here's your big takeaway. If you haven't listened, tune into this right here. Here's the whole sermon in one sentence. Here's this whole passage in one sentence. The hope of a brighter tomorrow begins and ends with the work of Jesus Christ. He is the sacrificial lamb, and it's through his work that God's purposes will be accomplished, and that should make each and every one of us respond in praise. So Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, he's on the throne. He's already won. He's carrying out God's plan of salvation now for you and for me. And so when we look to this lamb, it should cause us to respond in praise. And so I'll close with this this morning. We began talking about this thrill of hope, right? And the weary world rejoicing. And so I want to be clear to you what the thrill of hope is this morning. I think we see it in verse 5, going back, where it says, Weep no more, behold. Weep no more, behold. Do not weep, your translation might say. Look, y'all, I don't know what baggage you walk into the room with. I don't know um, what you're dealing with right now outside of these doors. Some of you might not feel particularly burdened at all, but some of you are. Some of you feel like the weight of the world is on you. And so if we're being honest with ourselves, we can look at the state of the world and we can see and we can lament all the bad things and sad things that happen to people every single day. Maybe you don't feel joy in the Advent season because it's too painful that it reminds you of lost loved ones. Maybe you're just tired. Maybe you're stressed out from work or from relationships that you have. And so if this is where you find yourself this morning, I want you to experience the thrill of hope. And so one thing I want you to see is that we're told to weep no more. And that weep no more doesn't stand alone by itself, but it's coupled with the word behold. So weep no more and behold. So it's not saying get a grip and pull yourself together. It's not a rebuke for feeling sad. It's it's not a call to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just get over it. But what it is, is an invitation to look and see the one who's in control of all of history and to look and see the very one who loved you and gave himself for you. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so for those who are in Christ, our story does not end with suffering. Our story does not end with hard and difficult and sad things. It does not end with heartbreak. Because there's going to come a day, like Samwise Gamgee says, where everything sad will become untrue. Where there's no sickness, there's no pain, there's no loss. And so for now, though, we look to the throne, and we know that whatever comes our way, Jesus is on the throne, and he wins, and he wins, and so we can sing with the weary world and rejoice in this awesome and most gracious work of our God. And so my question for you today is, have you looked to the only one who's able to save you out of the sin and misery of this world? Do you know that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace? And do you know that you're never so good to be beyond the need of God's grace? Do not weep. Behold the Lamb of God. Let's pray.